Each chapter of this book begins with a narrative by old Jack Lamplight, a fictional charmer who lives in the Camel Valley in the shadow of the High Tors on the western reaches of Bodmin Moor. It is here, sitting in his isolated farmhouse, that old Jack weaves his tales of natural history, wonderful customs, and hairy folklore as he writes his almanac. Full of his memories of the Cornish customs he has witnessed over the years and the folklore traditions and myths that he was told as a child and learned as an adult. As a charmer, Jack is often visited by the moorland farmers and residents seeking cures for all sorts of ailments and conditions, and through these meetings, he has gained an intimate insight into the folk life and magic from across East Cornwall. Old Jack is an amalgamation of characters and stories from the region, and I hope this insight will give you a broader picture of the subject matter within these pages. Alex Langston. So, Alex, what was the impetus behind the writing of this book? Well, that's a really interesting question, because I first got the idea when I moved to a new house. We'd been living in the far west of Cornwall with no reason to move. Mm-hmm. Um, we're really settled and enjoying life. Then out of the blue, a really good opportunity arose to move to a really spacious and remote farmhouse um, on the edge of Bogmin Moor. So in 2009, we moved to our new home in the Camel Valley, which is just on the edge of the moor. And just a few weeks later, I was searching for books about the locality. And there were plenty of general guides, but I couldn't find any books on the folklore of Bodmin Moor anywhere. And having grown up reading Robert Hunt's popular romances, which mainly focuses on the west of Cornwall, I started to formulate an idea that I should actually perhaps write a book on the folklore of Bodmin Moor and the surrounding districts. And as this idea grew, I sort of had this vision that my book would one day sit on people's bookshelves alongside the folkloric collections of Robert Hunt, William Bottrell and Margaret Courtney, sort of my heroes of, of Cornish folklore, if you like. So that, that was really what got me started. It was, it was actually an unplanned move to, to Bob Moore. Very interesting and magical, um, you know, uh, geography, Cornwall is. It's and is. full, and yes, and full of and rich on legends, ghost stories, tales, um, so you're, I think you're very lucky where you are, <laughs> really lucky. How did you research this? I mean, how was your method of research for the, you know, gathering all of this information? I'm sure you used the Museum of Witchcraft as well, but, uh, you know, how did you do this? Well, yeah, you're right. I did use the Magnificent Library in the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic, but that was that was one part of it, but... I had a multi-pronged approach, really. Um, having been interested in folklore since I was a child, I've written about folklore before, um, and but I've decided to use different methods this time. Um, and because we've got the internet now, uh, it seemed obvious, really, that I should start by using the internet. So what I did, I set up um, a Cornish folklore group on Facebook, and I thought this would be a really good forum for research and debate. And almost as soon as I'd set it up, people started joining. 
Um, we currently have over 2,000 members. Um, however, a core group soon emerged within the membership. And I was quite open at the time. I said, you know, I've set this up because I'm researching the folklore of Bob Moore. And people quickly, a core group quickly um, sort of started to chat to me. Um, and lots of information started to, to flow between um, the members of the group. I also set up a website to run alongside the Facebook group. And with these two online tools, I started to reach out to local communities, which was brilliant. And I asked the question about, does anyone have any folklore um, from Bob Moore? Um, any, any oral lore, traditions, anything that you might want to talk about? And people started to respond, which was really, really encouraging. It was, it was quite slow at first, um, but as I gained people's trust, it became really interesting. It's very interesting because it's all about trust, isn't it? All of these things. I mean, uh, you know, in other parts of the world, it's exactly the same thing. When it comes to very, very close traditions, and sometimes um, it's the trust. They it need is. to trust you. Yeah, and and it's which takes us into the honor, isn't it? I mean, if you're an honorable person, if you really are, um, then they will eventually open up and begin to actually talk to you. But it really is very difficult in the beginning, and I'm sure that the, you know secrets and things. You know how do you how do you cure um, or heal um, ringworm or anything else? I mean, there are methods that are really, really you know just in families. They don't really open that up. <laughs> to That's <anyone>. right. <laughs> <laughs> they, they certainly don't, and um, yeah. especially to an outsider like me. I, I wasn't born in Cornwall, I'm not Cornish, so it took a lot of effort. Right. Um, so while I was sort of um, gaining the trust of some of the locals, I also searched the archives of local museums and libraries, and I made many, many visits to the Cornish Studies Library in Madrid and also the Cornwall Records Office in Truro. Um, the, the biggest break I got, really, um, I was about, a, about nine months into the um, into the project. I was really lucky to find an almost complete set of the early editions of the old Cornwall Journal. And this oh. is the this is the journal of the Federation of All Cornwall Societies. And these journals were from the mid twentieth century, so about nineteen thirty onwards. And they were a complete treasure trove of, of obscure and virtually unknown folklore. And um, I had about 30 to 40, I think, no, it's about 40 of these journals um, over, over about a 20-year period. And I set down, I set myself a task of just going through every single one and looking for folklore. And I mean, they're not just full of folklore, they're full of all sorts of things to do with Cornwall and the Cornish. But the folklore was very apparent from right from the beginning um, from I think their first the first one came out in the 1920s I think it's 1928 and there was folklore in the first one and it was really 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 interesting as I worked my way through them I found so much of interest and through all these strands the old Cornwall journals talking to local people rereading some of the old classics um, by Robert Hunt, Sabine Bering Gould, Margaret Courtney, etc., etc. Um, I, I started to formulate an idea of how I was going to write this book. I also discovered um, the works of people like Jonathan Cooch, William Henry Painter, and also Ennis Tregarthen. Um, these 
three writers were of immense value, as we'll find out as we as we talk about some of the other questions. Was there anything that you got orally? There were a few things. I think one of the pieces of folklore that was repeated most often was um, the fact that people were still being pisky-led or, or mazed by the piskies when they were out and about in the landscape. And by this, I mean they were be, that they might have been in, in a, a landscape they knew really well, but for some reason they would, they would be lost and they, they couldn't find where they were going. And there were loads of accounts of this um, that I kept coming across but from different people in different areas of the region we're talking about. Um, and the answer to this was was quite was was the same every nearly every time, and that was in Eastern Cornwall. The the way to stop yourself being pisky led is to turn your pockets inside out. And as soon as you did this, put your hands in your pockets and pulled them out. Everything came back yeah. to normal, and and all of a sudden they they got they got their senses back, and and they found their way home, found their way to the pub from the pub sometimes. Um, all these different different stories really repeated the much the same thing of, of becoming very confused, um, feeling they were being led astray by some mischievous creatures, and then when they realised, sometimes they didn't realise for. A, for half an hour to an hour, and then they would suddenly thought, oh, hang on a minute, we're, we're being pisky-led, what do we do? And, and, and they realized, and they remembered what they did, and all of a sudden, things came back to normal. It was, it was quite amazing to hear these stories from different people. It's, it's really interesting, because my, my next question would be, you know, how much of this lore is still observed in today's world. I have been pisky-led a few times while researching this book, actually. It's almost <laughs> like the landscape was just having a little bit of a joke with me, trying to test me, maybe. With you. <laughs> uh, I can remember one instance being up on the moor, tr trying to find this particular location um, called the Devil's Jump, which is featured in the book. And mm -hmm. I, I found it okay, but there, and I've been there before, and it, it, I've been there a few times, but then I couldn't find my way back. And it was daylight. Um, I was completely of sound mind. I hadn't had a drink or anything. Um, and yet I couldn't find the path back, and I kept retracing my steps. And I didn't th even think at the time that what was happening to start off with, I was getting a bit panicky because I thought, well, if I can't find my way back, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, the phone, my mobile phone didn't work because we're in the middle <laughs> nowhere and and right. all of a sudden it, it just i just it just clicked i thought hang on a minute this area is a really powerful area in the landscape you know here i am um, they know what i'm up to i've stated my intention quite a few times so i turned my pockets inside out and within about two or three minutes i started to gain a sense of place again and the actual pathway i was looking for was there all the time but it, just by stepping a couple of feet to the side, I saw it. Right, uh, right. It was, it, it was, yeah, it was bizarre and quite embarrassing in many ways. But, but w when I realised what was happening, I thought, this is good, because now I'm experiencing it again. Um, there were other instances many years ago, but um, this one is the most recent and, and very relevant to my research and writing of From Granite to Sea. How do you think that this, um, no, we can draw an image of the, of, the, of the magical traditions and folklore of Cornwall, um, 
you know, through this research and through this uh, book, um, and uh, how would you think that it compares perhaps with other parts of the country? I, I know that um, the fairies or the little people or the big, the, all of all of that is actually very much, you know, observed in other parts of the country. But do you think that there is it as rich as in Cornwall? Because there is something about Cornwall that is really geographically, right? And, and that's another question about the geography of it that makes it almost like an island um, that would yeah, have perhaps, sure. you know, an influence on the, yeah. On the on the conservation and and you know keeping all of these things untouched by the evangelization of the <laughs> of the Christians, um, and it would preserved it because the contact was really very you know something happened uh, quite the same way in some other countries in Europe as well, um, just because of their geography. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting question and. The answer is complex, but I'm going to try and simplify it because I don't want to spend hours and hours on this particular question, and I could, believe me. <laughs> but <laughs> when I first was researching the book, um, I actually wondered if there'd be enough material to write about. But I soon realised, of course, this wouldn't be a problem. Um, as you say, Cornwall is a remote peninsula which juts out into the Atlantic Ocean in the far southwest of Britain. Mm -hmm. And its remoteness has allowed its law and culture to develop in an interesting way. Um, there are similarities with other parts of Britain, for sure. And you, you mentioned the, the, the Piskies, the small people, the fairies. They, they've mm -hmm. got different names in different parts of the country, uh, in different regions and localities. But I don't think there's as much law in certain other areas. I mean, certainly if you go to perhaps South Wales in particular, and maybe the, the Highlands of Scotland, you're going to find, you will find a lot. But in some of the more lowland sort of areas of the southeast of England, for instance, there just aren't these tales in such rich diversity. Um, right. Yeah. So it, it really is amazing um, sort of researching in such, within such a small peninsula a small peninsula land such as Cornwall, because um, mm -hmm. it's, it's small, you know, it's, it's only 90 miles from, from the River Tamar down to Land's End. It's, it's got a huge yes. long coast, but it's not a big place. You, you can travel across it in, in sort of, um, two or three hours easily. And yet there's this massive, massive, great t um, amount of folklore and culture and tradition within Cornwall. And... It's absolutely fascinating to actually be able to delve into some of the, the more unknown parts of Cornwall. And I can't believe that I've been given the opportunity, really, to write about Bodmin Moor and the eastern parts of, of the duchy, because I'm surprised someone else didn't, hadn't already done it. And the fact that it was left to me is such an honour, I tell you. And, and I'm so pleased I've done it because of that. It's just incredible. Now, one of the things that it's very interesting about this book is the way that it's written, right? So, um, and, th and that is really interesting, because when I got the book, I looked at it and I thought, this is really interesting. So, okay, so the book is, for, for those who are listening to us, the book is, is divided by uh, months of the year. And uh, you, you actually use a lot of uh, the Cornwall, uh, Cornish language in it, because, you, you know, yeah. between the text itself, but also in the, in the titles of the months and all of that. 
But in each of the beginning of the chapters, you have someone talking, right? Um, a um, cunning man of sorts, a sorcerer of sorts, that will tell us, uh, gives us uh, little pearls of wisdom, because it's almost like a diary of someone that actually lives in there, that actually is a practitioner, and that actually has an active life um, as a, a cunning man. Um, and, um, you know, you have little uh, tales or, 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 you know, daily living and as a practitioner that he goes to someone's house to heal them from some ailment or something. And he tells you how he did it and uh, what happened. Um, so there's a lot of things like that. In each of the beginning of the chapters, you have that. And so it's just fantastic. That piece alone is great in information, not only information, but also in um, narrative, and it's just really good. And then you'll have the narration of it, of course, you know, how it's it's done. How did you come up with this structure? Well, that's a great question again, because it just sort of came into my head one, one evening when I was um, thinking about how I wanted to write it, because I'd already told a couple of people I was gonna, it was going to be very different. And then I thought, how? And I started to quickly think, you know, how am I going to make this different from a lot of other folklore books? And I sort of, I mulled this over for a few days. In fact, it was probably more like a few weeks. Uh, but I had this idea in the back of my head where I wanted it to be a narrative of, of the people of the area, the people of Bodmin Moor. And... I didn't really know how to do this, so then I decided, I, I like fiction as well, I'm not, although this isn't work of fiction, I felt that I could create a fictional character, um, but he would be an amalgamation of lots of people that I've met, that I know, and, mm -hmm. part, and parts of myself as well, yes. and and also um, I've met a few charmers on the moor, and I've, I've, had, um, I, I've had some treatment from them. And I've had all these experiences of, of different people from around the, 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 this region of Cornwall. And I, I wanted to bring that to life somehow. So I did this through these very brief, but quite in-depth um, sort of paragraphs at the beginning of each chapter. And it sort of took on a life of its own, really. And people seemed to like it. I was a bit nervous about it, really, because, <laughs> you know, so I, I wanted to really want to do a good job with this book because it's the first on this particular subject, and, and I didn't know how it would be received. But so far, people right. seem to really like it, and I, I'm glad you mentioned it, because I, I don't really talk a lot about that, because it's quite personal to me. Yes, yeah, yeah. I thought that it was just genius. It was really, really good. I actually wrote a book as well, and I did something of this, almost the same thing in the beginning of each chapter. It was not really continuous like you do because you have the same person w telling you know all of these things so it's almost like reading a, a diary of someone uh, someone's yeah. diary but mine was uh, it's it's exactly that there there are fictitious fictitious situations that will describe some a, a, an atmosphere of some sort and yeah. that is, uh, you know, um, more or less what you did, because it's, it's basically atmospheric as well as uh, a personal account of a practitioner, which is just 
uh, incredibly well done. Um, and you said it's an amalgamation, so it, you can. It, it's just very rich. It's absolutely great. I loved that, it. Yeah, yeah, that that was exactly the sort of thing I was trying to achieve. So it's really interesting to hear you say that. And of course, I actually wrote this almost as a separate project. Um, I, I split it down in the end, but I wrote it as a complete sort of um, thing to start off with, and then. Obviously, I had the months of the year, and but I separated it to start off with from the book because I it was I was getting confused doing the two together. Um, but doing that, I think I really managed to, to, to bring old Jack to life. Um, and yes, yeah, and, and it, that's it really right. Yes. And I wanted to inspire people as well, and I thought this would, might just inspire people just a bit more to go out into these landscapes and and, and to try and experience something of what of what. I'd experience, you know, I'd, I'd experience a lot of um, interesting things in the landscape, and I come across a lot of really interesting stories. And th there's a tale not far from where I live here, actually, um, which I can tell you about, which might give you an idea of um, of how during the certainly during the 19th century, some of these old charmers and witches used to live, and and how they would work almost opposite each other. Um, and, and this is what the sort of thing I was thinking about when I was writing these introductions to the chapter. And um, this is a tale of a lady called Old Molly, who was the witch of Port Quinn. Now, Port Quinn is a very small fishing port on the north coast, um, not far from Polzef. Um, it's very tiny now. Um, it hasn't been used for fishing for over 100 years. Uh, it was a very famous pilchard fishing port at one time. And anyway, it, and there was a lot of people that lived there um, in the 19th century. And Old Molly was a bit of a troublemaker. And the theme of this As story... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the theme of this story seemed to be that Old Molly would cause trouble. And then there was somebody called Mrs. T. Now, I haven't got a full name, unfortunately, but she was the local charmer, and she would often perform counter-curse magic to, to, to bring everything back to rights again. And there was a couple mm -hmm. of tales here that, that were really interesting. One day, old Molly decided to go out. She, she was bad-tempered, obviously. I don't know why she was so bad-tempered, but she decided to go out and, um, and curse um, the cattle of some farm. Um, and just to cause some trouble. Anyway, she, she kept doing this, and Mrs. T, uh, she was one of the farmer's wives, and as I say, she was a charmer, and she would go out, she'd be like a local midwife to people, and she would really look after the village. And she got called in because a particular herd of cattle were, were, were really struggling. They they all caught ringworm, they, they, they weren't. They, they weren't acting as they should. They were very skittish. They just weren't very well. Anyway, mm -hmm. they sussed out that um, that old Molly or somebody may have put a spell on their farm and particularly on their cattle. So Mrs. T came along and she would use one particular um, counter-curse spell to break these spells of old Molly. Now, these are really interesting. And what she used to do... She, these spells had to be performed at midnight and she would sit by her hearth in her old cottage and she would get the heart of a newly slaughtered animal from the farm 
and she would stick this heart with loads of pins and sharp pieces of wood and other sharp objects until it was completely covered in, in these piercings. And when she'd done that, she would throw it into the fire and it would burn at midnight. And as it burnt, it would stop the curse. It would be, it, it would be like an anti-curse charm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it worked every time. And the stories of this charm being used in other parts of Cornwall as well, it's not just from Port Quinn. But the interesting thing is, and was, about this, is after this had been performed, the following day, the, 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 the witch, Old Molly, or whichever witch was causing mischief, uh, would have to go, come and find the charmer and make amends and make friends again, because if she didn't, she would, the witch would not be at peace and she wouldn't be able to carry on with her own trade. So there was this sort of trade-off, if you like, between the, the village witch and the village charmer. And it's almost, it's almost like they were working hand in hand because they obviously used to get paid for this work. Mm. And um, I don't know, there's, some very, there's an interesting dynamic in some of these stories um, yeah. where you had you know, cases of witchcraft and, and then cases of, 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 of counter-witchcraft. And it, yes. this story repeats time and time again over, all over Cornwall, and I presume elsewhere as well, but I haven't studied it in other areas of Britain. But, but it's interesting, anyway, uh, that we've got that story. Very good. Very good. That's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I I think that, yes, I think that they were, were t- working together, you know. I am. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be paid to curse that man, and then, or that cattle, and then you'll come along, <laughs> and you yeah. contradu- counteract that. It it really is. You know, there was a lot of um, cunning in the, you know, real sense of word about it. But it really very Absolutely interesting. Absolutely right. Yeah. 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 Um, but there is a tale that it's very interesting about the devil. The devil couldn't get in Cornwall, could he? He couldn't. Although. There's a lot of counter folklore that says he, he was very much here, but but there is yeah, a really, yes, yes. really interesting tale, um, folk yeah. tale, which is very famous um, in Cornwall. In fact, there's been a, a, there was a folk song written about it um, many years ago. So it's, it's really it's well sung about, it's well told. Um, you can find it in lots and lots of sort of books on Cornwall, and that's how the devil um, yeah. came to Cornwall, and was made to leave again because he was scared off um, by the fact that he thought he might be put into a pasty or, or a pie. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, I, mentioned, I mentioned the Devil's Jump earlier. Now, this is a site on Bodmin Moor, on the edge of Bodmin Moor, and there's some interesting folklore connected to this idea that the Devil was chased out of Cornwall um, um, for fear of um, being put into a Cornish pasty. And the idea is, the Devil's Jump, it, it, it's a big gorge um, with a river flowing through the bottom, and it's a really, really spectacular sight. Mm-hmm. But, but why is it called the Devil's Jump? And I did some research, and it's because at some point in the past, someone had either seen something going on there or, or felt that it was part of this story and mm-hmm. it's the place where he jumped from one side of the river gorge right across the 20 miles or so to the other side of the river tamar and he actually landed in devon 
um, where he decided to take up residence because he felt safer. Right, right. So uh, <laughs> there's lots of these little tales of him sneaking back over the river, the river border and then running back again because someone threatened to put him in a pie or threatened to cook him up with some fish or something, you know. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I think this might have have its some of it. Some parts of this might have it, uh, its origins in in the Methodism um, movement in the late 18th and early 19th centuries when there were tea treats and, and, and parties going on uh, where they would make lots of pies, pasties and, and other treats. And, and obviously this was a very Christian society. And I get the feeling there's something about this story that might hark from that time, but it's a very interesting story nonetheless mm-hmm. and well spoken about in the folklore of Cornwall. The devil business is really very interesting because you almost can trace where people, and I'm sure that this was, almost sure that this was done by the people, um, to get the church away from, you know, oh, he's he jumped to the other side, he's no longer here, <laughs> he's not, you know, so basically what they were saying is that, you know, there was no practitioners in here, he was not, you know. Um, yeah, and yeah. then he went into the side and then he, you know, because these were actually told to anyone. This is That's not right, secret. I mean, they're very yeah, popular. Yeah. You, you, you already said, you know, these were very popular. Uh, wh- one of the things that it's really interesting about um, Biskies, it's uh, 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 one little story that I thought that was really interesting, and I'm wondering why laughter. But um, there's this story about uh, Biskies going into a uh, circle, laughing, <laughs> dancing, and one of them actually lost... His laugh, and he That's has a name. Right. Yeah. Um, but the thing, yeah. But the thing is that, what do you think this means, really? I mean, it's well, really a very cute story. But what do you think that it's related with? I can give you a bit of background to this story, actually, because um, I've mentioned the author Ennis Tregarthen before in this conversation. Yes. Now, her real name was Nellie Floggett, and she was from Padstow which is within the district that I'm talking about here, um, along the north coast of Cornwall. Mm-hmm. And she was a children's writer. She wrote loads of children's stories uh, at, the, at the beginning of the 20th century. And, but she was also a folklorist. And she was housebound. This is the interesting about old Nelly. She was housebound. She had a spinal disease, which Mm. wouldn't allow her to walk. Mm -hmm. So she was, this was from about her early teens, I think she had this disease. So she was housebound for her entire adult life, right through her teens into adulthood. And she would put out a call and and people would come to her harbourside dwelling and, and pass on pieces of folklore to her. And she turned a lot of these into children's stories. And what she also did, she was a great storyteller, and she actually, she would gather bits of folklore from here, there, and everywhere across Cornwall and turn them into these wonderful little cute tales, which you're talking about here. Now, let me just read this this piece out to you about Travaux's mm-hmm. head and, and the Piskies, because it's, in the, on one hand, you can see it's part of a children's story, but on the other hand, there's a lot of folklore to unpick here. Now, yes. it goes like this. At Travaux's head in Cornwall, 600 piskies were said to have gathered dancing and laughing in a circle that had appeared upon the turf 
on the turf until one of their number, named Omfra, lost his laugh. After searching amongst the barrows of the ancient kings of Cornwall on nearby St Brioch Downs, he heads to Bodmin Moor and wades through the bottomless Dodgemary Pool until his laugh is restored by King Arthur in the form of a chuff. <laughs> yes. Now there you go. That's I almost didn't include this in the book because I knew it was it, it was probably written as some sort of introduction to a children's story or or, or it's put down yes. some yes. idea. But interestingly, it's actually from one of her folklore books, the folklore of uh, of North Cornwall. So it didn't come from a children's story initially, but but you can see where she's going with it. But there's a lot of interesting things in here. You know, we talk about. Um, King Arthur in the form of a chuff. Now, many people might not know what we're talking about when we talk about a chuff. Now, a chuff is a member of the crow family. So it's a corvid, it's a bird. And they were once very prevalent in Cornwall. They they used to nest along the cliffs. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's seen as the national bird of Cornwall in many respects. Um, and let me give you a clue about what they look like. So they're all black. Mm-hmm. And they're crow-like. Um, they remember the crow family. They're about the same size as a crow, but they've got bright red legs and a bright red beak. And this actually makes them stand out from all the other members of the crow family because they've got this this beautiful red beak, beautiful bright red feet. And as I say, these used to nest all along the coast in Cornwall, and they died out. But they are coming back now, and, and they're seen by many as, as a real the spirit of Cornwall, almost, the spirit of the land. Mm-hmm. And, and they're very, it, it's, you'll see an image of the chaff on the Cornish coat of arms, and, and you'll see it all over the place. Anything to do with, with the nation of Cornwall um, and, and Cornish, Cornish folklore, Cornish nationalism, um, anyone that's proud to be Cornish will, will, will be proud of the image of the chaff. So that's really important that. that She's mentioned that in this story. And this idea mm-hmm. of King Arthur, it said that when King Arthur died, he his spirit inhabited this bird called the Chuff. So there's that mm-hmm. link there as well. And mm-hmm. she mentions things, places like Dosmery Pool, which is a famous um, stretch of water on the top of Bodmin Moor. It's the only piece, natural lake on the moor. There's lots of lakes, but they're mostly from quarrying. This is the only natural lake, and because of that, it's gathered lots of folklore to its shores. Um, and it has Arthurian connections, which don't go back more than sort of 100 to 150 years, but they're interesting. You know, it's the place where Sir Bedivere threw Excalibur into the lake, and the Lady of the Lake raised her hand and took it down for safekeeping. Um, Mm -hmm. It's also the site, according to Enstragarthen again, it's the site where there's a a really old story, an ancient story of this lady in the lake, which precedes the Arthurian story, probably by hundreds of years, and is quite possibly the core of the story. Mm -hmm. And it's an idea that there's this almost mermaid-like figure um, that lives deep down in in Dosmery Pool. And she lives in this vortex of, of energy, almost like an underground waterfall. And it's here that she raises the winds that, 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 that wail across the moor. And, and, and she conjures these winds from underneath the Dosmery Pole. And this lady mm-hmm. is called the Old Storm Woman. And 
interestingly, in a church not too far from Dosbury Pool, there is a carving of a mermaid. Now, this church is miles from the sea. It's probably the most inland place you can get in Cornwall, uh, right on top of the moor, just a few miles from Dosbury Pool. Someone was inspired to carve this mermaid figure on this church roof. Now, I reckon they were tapping into some of this story that, that Ennis Tregarthen um, told about this old storm woman, this, this old goddess figure underneath the, 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 the water at Dosbury Pool. And the fact that she conjures storms, she's like conjuring things underneath the water, it makes it a very powerful and primordial tale. Um, and I think it's definitely the, the origins of the, the Arthurian Lady of the Lake story. You use a lot of Cornish language in here. Um, I do, do yes. You, yes, and, and it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And then, do you know the origin, or do we know the origin of uh, Corn, Cornish language? Absolutely, yes. Um, Cornish is one of the old Celtic languages of, of Britain. Well, it's based on, one of the old Celtic, on the old Celtic language of Britain. And it was spoken in Cornwall um, for hundreds of years. Right, and although a lot of scholars think it died out in the latter part of the 18th century, it, it didn't. Mm -hmm. and although it's, it's a very at-risk language these days, it's still being spoken in Cornwall by a few hundred people. And it, it was never, it's never, people have never stopped speaking it. Um, right the way through, it, as I say, it almost died out. But even when it was dying out in the far west of Cornwall, it was still being spoken by different families at home, and it was it was revived in the early twentieth century. And as the revival started, people were still speaking it in family groups, and mm -hmm. it sort of it sort of had a big resurgence of interest in the early and mid-20th centuries. And, and I think part of the reason for this, I think there's many reasons. One of the main reasons is people are interested in history. And the old language of the British Isles was, well, sorry, the old language of the island of Britain, mm -hmm. as opposed to the British Isles, was this Britonic Celtic language. Um, which was spoken here for thousands of years, and it was spoken right up until the Saxons arrived. And from from when the Saxons arrived, the English language started to develop because it wasn't even a language then. It, you know, they spoke Germanic languages, the Saxons. So English mm -hmm. grew out of that, and right up and up and beyond when the Saxons uh, arrived in in on the Isle of Britain. Um, this ancient language has been spoken. Now, Cornwall is a modern version of it, but it's not just Cornish. Sorry, Cornish is a modern version of it, but it's not just Cornish. The interesting thing is we've got the Welsh language, which is related to Cornish in many ways. It's a similar language. Uh, that has seen a massive resurgence in recent years. And, and if you go to Wales now, you can see um, all the signs are, are bilingual. They're both in Welsh first, English second. And also over in Brittany, um, there's the, the, the language of the Bretons, which is also a similar language. And these three languages are all that we've got 
that remains of this very ancient Britonic language of Britain. And by using the language in Cornwall, you can really begin to get an understanding of place. And although not many people speak Cornish anymore, everyone's speaking it every day because the majority, the vast majority of, of, of Cornish place names are in the old language of, of Cornuic, of Cornish. And every time you speak these names, you're speaking Cornish. It really looks, I don't know how it sounds, but it really, uh, written, it's, it's just beautiful. It's really very, very interesting. It's a very it is a beautiful see. language to look at. I've heard it spoken by, by um, Cornish people, and it, it, sounds, it sounds really lyrical. And, yep. and poetic, mm -hmm. and I, I don't speak hard. I speak hardly any Cornish at all. But um, it's interesting to learn because once you learn about the place names of Cornwall, you get a sense of what they mean because they all mean something. And and of course, and, yes. And it's really yeah. as a folklorist and historian, it's really important to know that. So of course, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, as yeah. I say, it's a really important part of it, and that's why I included it in the book because. I feel that it's, it's very much a part of understanding the culture uh, and, and the, the, the life of Cornwall. And, and because of that, um, it's in the book. We're, we're going to go through a couple of things. Um, you know, we're not going to go through all of the <laughs> months. Um, and each month have like a lot of things in it. So it's really, you know, so we're going to pick a couple of them and we're going to go through a couple of traditions and things that um, you talk about in the book. There's a lot of ghost stories as well um, in each of the, you know, there's a lot of ghost stories in October. <laughs> there is. <laughs> um, but um, it really cool, uh, you know, beautiful things in other, you know, January, for instance, one of the things that is uh, in there, it's... Um, well, there are actually a couple of things. <laughs> We're going to stay here for three hours, ladies and gentlemen, so yes, just bear will. with us. <laughs> um, there is Twelfth Night, uh, yeah. which is uh, a tradition that it's actually observed in January. Can we? Can you tell us a little bit about that? One of the 12 days of Christmas, obviously. It's the 12th uh, yes. day of Christmas. Yeah. Now, um, Twelfth Night has got a lot of traditions all over the place, but it seemed to have been really, really important in Cornwall. Um, a lot of the Christmas celebrations seem to transfer to Twelfth Night, and there was a lot of quite unique things happening uh, at, on Twelfth Night, um, certainly in the 19th century, and a lot of things have been revived. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll run through a few of these things now. There's a few things that we know about, about the Twelfth Night festivities. Um, Twelfth Night, January the 6th, it's a time of general feasting and merriment, um, one of the things that used to happen on Twelfth Night, they used to make a Twelfth Day cake, and it was a bit different to Christmas cake. It was a slightly different recipe, um, but they would put objects into it. They would place into it a wedding ring, a sixpence, <laughs> and a thimble, right? These three yeah. things, okay? And yeah. then it was cut up into portions, as many portions as there were guests, okay? And each person... <laughs> had to eat this piece of cake and if they found an object it meant something and i'll run through what of each course, thing yes. means um so if they found the wedding ring in his or her portion 
they would obviously be married before the year was out. So they, they were going to be married that year. Um, that's quite an obvious one. The holder of the thimble would apparently never be married. It's quite sad. And and, <laughs> and, the, and the one that got the sixpence would, would die rich. So that would be good for whoever got the sixpence. But um, it, it was used as a kind of divinatory kind of cake um, to, to, yes. to work these things out. Um, yes. And... It's in another tradition that was particularly um, associated with Twelfth Night was all your Christmas decorations should be taken down on Twelfth Night, and all the Christmas cakes should have been consumed before this day. Uh, otherwise, bad luck would ensue. Uh, yes. And these these just aren't these two things aren't just um, didn't just uh, weren't just observed in Cornwall. They were observed across Britain and probably further afield as well. And um, but there's a couple of more Cornish things going on here. Um, in the old days, in Lithgard and districts, uh, it's an old one of the old towns in Eastern Cornwall. Um, mm-hmm. um, there was a particular superstition, and that was it was said that on Twelfth Day, all the cattle on the farm should be fed a double ration of fodder, and failing to do so would see the farmer overtaken with very bad luck. So we've got this idea of treating the livestock something extra for luck mm-hmm. um there were also a few games played on 12 nights and one of them was called jack's alive and this was described by margaret courtney the great folklorist from the 19th century and mm-hmm. i'll try and explain how this was played um you'd be sitting around a fire and you grab a piece of firewood and that, that was flaming one end, and the idea was it was whirled rapidly in the hands of the first player to, to make the fire sort of burn brighter, and it was sent around the circle. And with the, these words, the, these words had to re- be repeated by everyone, and the words were, Jack's alive and likely to live. If he die in my hand, a pawn I'll give. Now, what that means is if the fire died down in, whoever's hand the fire died down in, would have to um, perform a pawn. Now, what we mean by a pawn is a forfeit. That's what it was called in local dialect. Right. So um, if I received this piece of wood and the fire died down, it would be, oh, your turn to do something silly. You know, we dare you to sing a song. We dare you to jump in the harbour, etc., etc. And um, so the idea was to keep this flame alive um, and keep passing it around the circle until somebody had the misfortune to let the flame die out. And that would be played on Twelfth Night in particular. And it's interesting that it involves fire because... um, Fire very much associated with midwinter, uh, keeping the fire alive, um, um, allowing the, 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 the light to start to get brighter from the winter solstice and all the rest of it. So this idea of keeping the fire alive in your hands turned into a game, but it was obviously has some serious meaning behind it, i.e. don't <laughs> let the fire die down because um, you know it, it's very important the fire stays alight. And in a ritualistic right. sense, um, the fire is... is, is is representing the, the sun at the winter solstice, at the midwinter, uh, its weakest point, but um, gaining strength from that point. And by the 6th of January, it, it gained a bit of strength already. So 
I think there's a lot to be said for this game um, called Jack's Alive, and, and there's a lot to link it to the time of year. So it's quite interesting. Another tradition for January is wassail. Am I saying this correctly? I think so. You are, yeah. yeah. Wassail, yeah, that's it. Wassail, yeah. Wassail. So, uh, wassail. And um, um, there's a lot of, um, actually, a, a lot of songs. You, you, you have a lot of songs in, the, in, the, in this part of the book. Um, songs are often where things are actually said. And there's, uh, you know, things that are said in songs, sometimes children's songs or just, you know, round dance songs. Yeah. Um, yeah. They are really important because the, there are a lot of pieces of, uh, of folklore in there. Um, songs are sung, right, in the Wassail um, tradition, um, this particular tradition. Um, what is this? And, and do you think that these songs that are sung have or teach us about the old ways in any shape or form? I think they can, but um, before I go into that, I really think I need to explain a bit more about the wassail, because there's, yeah. two, there's two distinct traditions in Cornwall about uh, to do with wassailing. Mm-hmm. And um, if I explain them, and then we can tie it all up with, with um, what it means um, at the end. But mm-hmm. um, the first wassail that we're going to talk about um, links very nicely with the Twelfth Night celebrations because it's the Bodmin wassail. And this is a visit wassail. Now, there are two types of wassail in Cornwall, as I said. The most popular type these days is the visit wassail, as opposed to the apple orchard wassail, which more people seem to know about. Now, Mm -hmm. the visit wassail is... An older tradition in Cornwall, as far as I can work out, um, it has its origins in sixteen in the sixteen hundreds um, in Bodmin. So it's been going for a long time. Now this involves a, a, a group of men from the town who dress up in gentlemen's hand-me-downs, i.e., the clothes of the gentry in days of old were handed down, and they would dress up as the gentry because it's the only time they could do it. And also, it enabled them to somehow feel different and perhaps be slightly disguised as well. And they would go round from house to house um, singing the, their wassail songs. Mm-hmm. And um, this has been going on since the 1600s, as I said. But um, these days, it, it's, it's still as popular, if not more so, and it's been updated a bit, and it actually, the wassailers start um, early in the early afternoon, and they go to the mayor's house first, and they, they've got this bowl. Central to the um, ceremony is the wassail bowl. Now, this bowl, um, they carry around with them, and they take it to pubs and to houses, and people put um, um, the wassail cider in there, and then they drink from it and while they're, whilst they're singing. And... This goes on all day, as I say, from, from around one o'clock in the afternoon right through to sometimes midnight, where they end up at one of the last pubs in the town, and, and they by this time they're, they're singing very jolly Wassail songs. But um, <laughs> it's, sure. it's an absolutely amazing sight. They're all dressed up, they've all got top hats on, and um, you can see pictures online. I think it's bodminwassail.co.uk. You can, if you type it into Google, you'll, you'll find pictures of the Bodmin Wassailers um, looking absolutely fantastic. 
Anyway, so that, that's the visit Wassler, and this happens in other parts of Cornwall. It happens down in the west of Cornwall as well, but this is the only surviving visit Wassail in the eastern half of Cornwall. Um, now, the second type of Wassail is the orchard Wassail, in particular apple orchards we're talking about here. Um, now, this is where it gets interesting, because there are Wassail songs associated with this type of um, of ceremony as well but this is much more to do with um, a blessing of the crops now this used to happen quite a lot in, uh, in around Bodmin Moor around the villages around the moor in particular there'd be lots of villages which would have their own kind of crop wassail or apple orchard wassail and they would walk around they'd walk around in a massive procession um, visiting all the principal orchards in the parish and in each orchard one tree would be selected uh, as a representative of the rest and this was saluted with certain words and they would sprinkle the tree with cider or dash a bowl of cider against it to ensure the crop was plentiful. In other places the farmers and their servants would assemble um, on the farm somewhere and they would immerse the apples from last year's crop in the cider and then hang them on the apple trees as a blessing. They would then sprinkle cider around the roots and a lot of them would utter words at this point, some form of, of wassail incantation if you like. And one of the most popular, and this is one that's traditional to Bodmin Moor, it goes like this. Here's to thee, old apple tree. Hats full, packs full, great bushel bags full. Hurrah! And they'd let out this huge hurrah and there'd be like instruments, drums would be banged, horns would be blown, there'd be massive great noise made and this noise was said to, to, to drive the devil out of the orchard and, and bring prosperity from the good nature spirits to the trees. And going back to these songs, these songs are very much about the blessing of the crops, the blessing of the land, and making sure each village was fruitful um, so they had plenty to eat. And, and this is what we look, I think this is what we're looking at. Um, this goes back a long way and it's very much to do with um, appeasing the spirits of the land and, uh, and, and getting something very important, i.e. food, back to the people of the village. Right, right, right. Um, now, in this particular chapter, um, there is a lady that um, it's really actually, uh, it's, we, we should mention her, Dorothy Dingley. So how is it important that we mention her? <laughs> well, um, it's, it's quite a well-known ghost story in Cornwall. Um, it's it's quite an old story. Yes, um, it goes back to the seventeenth century. Um, it for a long time it was thought to be fiction, but the general consensus is that it is based in fact now, and it is a it is a a, a traditional ghost story in so far as it's linked to a particular place. So it has a lot of folkloric. Um, strands to it. Now, Dorothy Dingley was a young woman from the parish of South Petherwin, near Lanson, on the, right uh, up, up by the Tamar, on the on the eastern um, border of Cornwall. 
Now she lived during the mid 17th century, and and she had quite a sad story. She had an affair with one of the the big local farming family's sons. Now this farming family were called the Blyes, mm-hmm. Bly family. Now one of the sons she had an affair with, and she got pregnant, but she died during childbirth after having this secret affair, and she where she where she gave birth was a place was at a farm called um Botafen. now at this at this farm this is where she haunts so she haunts a couple of fields there um and she began to haunt the land near the, the, the family home and would frequently scare family members using a particular footpath across one of the fields mm-hmm. near Botafen farm um, which is not far from the River Inney um, and South Petherwin. Um, the family became so scared by the ghosts that they called in one of the famous ghost layers at the time. Now, this was the Vicar of Altonham up on the moor, and his name mm-hmm. was Rev- Reverend Ruddle. Now, Ruddle had been called forth to lay uh, lots of ghosts to rest over, here, over the years, ghosts that were haunting local houses and giving people all sorts of problems. Here we go. He was like the exorcist of the day. Right. And, and he, he would go, and, and with great um, pomp and ceremony, he would lay these ghosts to rest. Now, they called Rudley because he had this reputation of being good at his job. Uh, he was also a clergyman, so people trusted him at that time. And he listened to the story, um, and he agreed to lay the ghost to rest, simply because the family's children were being scared, and they didn't want to walk across this footpath, across this field, and they were right. virtually... And if they couldn't do that, they couldn't get to the village, couldn't get to, to do all sorts of things. So um, he was called in. Anyway, he researched this case, and he chatted to the family, and he sort of began to get an idea of what was really going on. But there was lots of holes in the story because the family weren't going to admit what happened. It was all secret and hush-hush. Anyway, one morning, Reverend Ruddle went to the field uh, at first light and he took with him a rowan walking stick, which was his wand of power for protection, and he wore a ring marked with a six-pointed star. This was his other magical implement. And he walked for a while in meditation around this meadow he said prayers, and then he walked some more and meditated some more. And finally, he was alone, just guarded by his rowing stick. He entered the haunted field. And soon after, he saw this apparition in the far corner of the field, moving quite slowly towards him. It was described as, as a sort of glowing white shape, and as he got closer, he could see it was the spirit of a... Uh, a teenage girl, a girl perhaps in the late teens, early 20s. Anyway, um, it got, the story goes on, and this is Reverend Ruddle's voice now. Soon after five, I stepped over the stile into the disturbed field and had not gone far when the ghost appeared at the further stile. I spoke to it with a loud voice and asked it to leave, holding up my rowing stick. It moved towards me slowly, I spoke again, and it answered in the voice neither very audible nor clear. I was not in the least terrified, and therefore persisted to ask her to rest in peace. 
She told me to return later the same day towards dusk. So the Reverend Ruddle left the field and reading the story, it seems that he somehow made a bargain with the ghost um, mm-hmm. and he would never reveal what had really troubled her in life nor the so-called sin which had caused her to haunt the field. And this bargain also ensured that in return she would allow him to lay her ghost to rest for all eternity. And what mm-hmm. happened was Ruggle went back at dusk for the final exorcism and with the pact secretly agreed upon and with great pomp and ceremony with his rowing stick and his ring with a, with a six-pointed star, he gently laid her spirit to eternal rest. And since that day, she hasn't been seen that much, although people do still see her. They, do stu- they still see a ghost in this field at the, at the, at the farm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. some people still say that she, she still comes out sometimes just to remind people of her story, um, although for most of the time she is at rest and at peace. Now, moving to February... Um, uh, there is something, so we're, we're, we're having the Lent here, right? It's this time for Lent. And there was something called Jackal Lent tradition. (laughs) Yeah, there is. Well, there was. It's really, yeah, this is quite interesting. Yes. So uh, can you tell us a little bit more about Jackal Lent? Jackal Lent, right. Um, yeah, this is what I've managed to discover about Jack O'Lynn. Obviously, linked to the time of Lent in the Christian calendar, a time of um, a time of giving certain things up, perhaps, um, and a time of fasting. But not for the people of Polperro, it appears, because in the village, the south coast village of Polperro, is a hive of folklore, as anyone that, that reads the book will find out. And this is one of the obscurities of, of, of February in Polperro. Now, there was, a, there was this big street festival where an old straw effigy um, was made uh, with arms and heads, and he was clothed in rags, and he was paraded through the village on a big stick. And as he went past people, they would throw stones at him. They were pelting with boulders and bits of rock and mud from the harbour. And this would go right through the village, down to the harbour. And, and at the end of the parade, there was a fire. And he was cast into the flames of the roaring bonfire, which was built both in his honour and also to consume him. Now, some some people used to say that Jack O'Lent was um, said to represent Judas Iscariot. But others would say he was more likely a representation of some far distant pre-Christian idol or practice of seeing off the winter. And I think that's closer to the truth. I think this is this was a festival where the villagers would let their hair down, um, they'd let out a bit of frustration, they'd, they'd build this lovely sort of straw figure, and then they'd burn him at the end, um, as, as burning off the winter and bringing in the, the, the spring and all that's associated with early spring. Um, more food, more prosperity, more fish to be caught in the sea, perhaps. There is a very interesting uh, charm in this particular February um, uh, piece and and chapter. Uh, it's the scent when charm, the ringworm one, and uh, it's yeah, yeah. done yeah. by your friend. Um, 
right? So um, it, it's very interesting because how it does it, it's, it's very, I like to see these things for the anatomy of them. So I'd like to see how it was done and understand okay. why it was done that way. Sure. So okay. uh, can you describe to us how it was done? I or can how, now. How we, yeah. How we yeah now, okay. They, the, so this is the St. Wencharm. Yes. I'm sure there were lots of them. Oh, I'm uh, sure, this, yes. This, this yes. is one I discovered. Um, I think this came from one of the old Cornwall journals again. Um, yes. initially and um, then I spoke to I did a talk in somewhere in a couple of years ago uh, about folklore and somebody actually mentioned this to mm -hmm. me again so even without prompting them so it, it definitely did happen and probably still does happen in somewhere and it's quite a simple charm but it's got it's very interesting because it's a bit different now it involves the client bringing the charmer three strips of cloth torn right, from yeah torn from his or her bed sheets yeah. over the period of a month. Now, the idea would be that there'd be three visits to the charmer um, over the period of four weeks, um, probably set in, in regular intervals, where the person would tear a stri strip of cloth from their bed sheets and each time bring it to the charmer's home. And each time the charmer would place this strip of cloth in his Bible, his or her Bible. Now, over a period of three or four weeks, this would be done three times. And then after the last visit, they will be taken out of the Bible and then they are worn upon the client's body until the ringworm or other disease has disappeared. So they would be tied onto the, the, the body somehow of the client yes. and just left there until the ringworm, this is particularly for ringworm, I think, but until it had gone. And, yes. and, people, yes, yes. And, and it would go quite quickly, and they wouldn't have to wear them long. Um, but this is quite unusual because I've not heard of strips of cloth being torn from their bed before. I've, I've heard of articles of clothing being used, but this is specific, a specific thing of the bed clothes. So obviously bed clothes, you're sleeping in the bed, they're going to be very personal to you. So... Yeah, you can see perhaps how this might work. Um, the Bible would have been a very central part of the Chalmers' life. You know, Chalmers were, were essentially heretical, but they were basically Christian most of the time. Yes. And, and yeah. they would be using, using the they'd be reciting the Psalms from the Bible uh, and, 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 and doing readings. And, and this idea of them being going in the Bible would be, a, the Bible would, be, would have been the focus of the household. It's a very powerful thing to do. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I, and, I, and I don't know for sure, but as I said, people a couple of years ago were still telling me about this charm in this village. So whether that means it's still being used, perhaps it does. Yeah, maybe it does. There, um, there are certainly uh, charmers. Charmers are still about. You know, there are charmers about in Cornwall still, and they still have clientele. So, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure. And it, it's very interesting because if you think about it, um, all of these things are, and I like the purpose. I like I like to um, to actually see how I find it interesting that the Bible actually gives you know imbues the, this this cloth into holiness. And then that would be used for, you know, for the for the for the cure, the healing yeah. of the of yeah. the ringworm, which I think that it's absolutely in, in, very, very incredible. Now, I wonder, was there in a 
specific place of the Bible? Was it just, you know, between the, you know, <laughs> those I are the I, little I, details. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. know. I was unable to find out, really. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, people, yeah. So these are I the think, secrets. These are the secrets, they, Alex, they are, that they, they don't are. tell us. <laughs> I, I, I reckon each individual charm board had their own section. Um, oh, a favorite section, yeah, or a yeah. section that was that was particularly um, magical. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, probably. I think yeah. yeah, these are the little things. And then where would they put in the in the in the body? Would they say anything while they put it in the body? I mean, there's the, all of these little pieces. Probably were or where we just want more, but um, yeah. <laughs> but it, but it really is something that these are the little things that we don't really get. Which is very interesting as well. Now you talk about Candlemas, of course, um, in February, and there is an importance about the ram. That kind there of is, thing. yeah, there is. Now um, it's important for the town of St Blasey in particular, uh, which which celebrates its feast on the third of February, uh, which is very close to, to Candlemas, uh, and um, and they celebrate with a street procession. Uh, this happens every year, and it's led by this giant illuminated ram in honour of the town's patron saint of Woolcombers and sore throats, St Blaise, which is where the town gets its name from. It's quite an obscure saint. He's, he's not it's a Celtic It's very saint. interesting. I thought, I thought that it was very interesting yeah. because of the ram and, and all it, that. It is. Now, now, obviously, lambs and rams and sheep very much associated with this time of year, but this doesn't necessarily mean that this the meaning is there for, for this. I think this is something a little bit different. Um, although the ram could be seen as a symbol of spring approaching, I think it's more associated with St Blasey and, and, and the saint, the patron Saint Blaise, because because he was very much a, a patron of wool and wool combing and, and, and making clothes from wool which would have been very important. And um, by parading the beast through the town, they're welcoming the brighter days ahead for sure. But I think it's something more than that. I think they're, they're, they're honouring the founding of the town. And what the t and, and, and by, by doing that, they're tapping into something about the locality that we probably will never find out about. But um, for instance, St Blaise was also um, a healer and he was in particular very good at healing sore throats. And part of this modern festival they, they have today, they go into the parish church at the end, and mm -hmm. there's a bless, a, the actual the clergy do a blessing of the throats. So they bless everyone's throats um, f for the year. And, it, and yeah, it's, they also have a, a mock official there. Um, they have this, this boy or girl, pre, this boy or girl bishop. Um, this child dresses up as a bishop for the day, and they are right at the front of the of the procession, and they are held in such high esteem. They get to sit sit in the bishop's chair in the church, uh, and they are treated like royalty for, for the procession as well. So, so yeah, it, it's a real it's a real big thing, and but quite obscure. Um, I haven't come across anything quite the same as this really in in this part of Cornwall where um where it's based on a saint which isn't a local saint it, um and and yet somehow it, it's been interwoven with with the culture of, of of this town so it's interesting because of that and and 
and the fact that in days gone by they would have had a big bonfire as well and and they would have obviously had lots more community things going on um today they have a lot of um of of, of traditional cornish music in the procession and yes. And, yes. and it's said that they finish off with a pasty supper and all the rest of it. It's a great community event, and it goes on every year still, um, and it's wow. really good. Oh, I like it. I, I just love it. Uh, I think that it's you know people sometimes they they think, um, you know, if they are pagan or if they're whatever it is that they you know think that they have to be. Um, they stay away from these uh, things because they really don't understand. They think that they're Christian-based and, uh, you know, they really don't want to be associated with it. But the fact is that there is a lot uh, in these particular traditions of today that are probably, um, you know, clothed in, in, of course, Christianity, and that's how it is. But there is a kernel of of you know old old ways in, of in course the, there is yeah they're an amalgamation you know. of lots of different traditions and, and and the interesting thing is they they get they get morphed into something more like this is such a it feels like such a traditional cornish celebration um and it is but no one really knows when it started or how old the festival is and i've not been able to find that when it started i think it's in its current format it's very modern you know it's maybe going for 10 15 years possibly not even that long but but there's something there that that i felt was really interesting in 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 the way communities come together and and celebrate um and, and in cornwall in particular there's this great thing about celebrating your feast day the, the, the day of your patron saints and these aren't necessarily although they're, they've got they're christian in many respects they're, they're done from a from the sense of community more than anything else really uh, and you get people from all walks of life at these things and and everyone just comes together and and they're focused on the same thing for a few hours and and the sense of community you get from these these types of event is is really really strong and i think that's what keeps these towns going more than anything else it keeps the the communities alive is this folkloric sort of thing yes running through yeah. the, the threads of their lives well alex i'm i'm thinking about power because the amount of power that it's generated by those things it's incredible absolutely yeah <laughs> one of the things in portugal for instance is the maples um and uh, they do uh, different areas in Portugal. They do different things, but uh, one that seems to be consistent is the uh, greased uh, maple, where the young men and they have to be, you know, young, uh, no more than uh, you know, uh, or between fourteen and eighteen. So they're you know they're young, yeah. Um, and they will climb up. Uh, you know, and there is a treat. There is a treat on the top um, with a crown of flowers. And uh, if you ask them today, wh why are they doing that? Where is they coming from? That they don't know. They absolutely have no clue. <laughs> they think that it's fun to do and it's a game yeah, and all of right. that. Um, but the thing is that um, it, it really is very clear <laughs> where that comes from and what is it doing. Um, and why there are young men doing this. You know, uh, married men are not allowed to do this. Um, men after 18 are not 
allowed to do this. So it, it, there's a clear message there. And this is what I like about folklore is that or traditions like this. It's that you can actually peel the different layers and see what is behind that particular you can thing, yeah. you can and, yeah. and as you say it's interesting that you are you ask these guys why they're doing it they don't know they're just happy to do it because it's part of the tradition and it's fun and and it's a sense of community uh, and that's that, that's what all that ha- that's all that matters to most people but until you start to look at these traditions and then you realize what lies behind them all Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very interesting. Now moving on to March. Mar- March is actually a, a time of um, water. It's water. It's to it's to collect water for charms. It's to um, do all sorts of things. And also the cost, uh, the 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 tradition of the cross bun, which is very interesting as well. What is this about the cross bun? Right now, this is something I didn't really know about at all. Um, I certainly didn't know that there was a tradition like this in Cornwall. I'd heard of these traditions elsewhere, but um, I stumbled across this when I was researching for the book. And again, it's, it's focused on the, the, the fishing village of Polpero on the south coast. And it's an old Easter custom uh, where on Good Friday, the tradition is you bake these cross buns. Hot cross buns, they're called a lot of the time, but they're not always eaten hot. But... Um, um, it's a big tradition right across Britain um, that you have these buns with a cross on. And they're fruit buns, sweet buns, really nice to eat. But one was kept back in Polpero and, uh, and from each household and was hung up in farmhouses, often from a bacon rack or something similar uh, uh, um, near the fire, so it would dry out and, 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 and sort of almost mummify. And it was kept for a year. And then on the following Good Friday, it was replaced, and the old bum was used as a charm. And what they did, they would crush it up and add a little bit to the cattle's feed, and it was used in particular to cure sick cows. And of course, um, the farm's cows were really important because um, they provided milk and meat and the rest of it. Really important um, for the local community. So it's really important to keep the livestock in good condition. And and this idea that this bun was kept there for a year, and then on the following day, so a year and a day later, it was crushed up and they would keep it and use it as a charm to keep their livestock in tip-top condition. Um, yeah, and and that's. But I can't find this custom anywhere else in Cornwall. It seems to be particularly associated again with Polpero, which is really a hub of folklore activity for sure. We we need to go to, to Polpero. <laughs> yeah, Polpero um, is a great place. <laughs> yeah. So are these round? These are round, right? They're, they're, round, they're round, round bands with a cross on the top. Yeah, yeah. Which it, it reminds me of of the uh, a wheel. So a, a wheel of yeah, yeah. a cross wheel. It's yeah. very very interesting. It is. Um, it, it's just used like as a spe- term. Yeah. Use, use special food for a special thing. You know, it's um, yes. like a special day, which would have been That's a right. holiday, yeah. and people would have stopped work, and and they would have been focusing on on the on the meaning of the day, and they had this yes. extra yeah. aspect of this local tradition. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there is, you know, March. Of course, you know, water charms. You collect water. Um, the dew in the morning. You know, all of that to yeah. to heal, uh, for healing. Um, what is the difference between a holy well and a drinking well? 
Ah, right, then this causes a lot of, um, of, of arguments, really. But um, the, these are my three criteria, and they're not definitive, and they're not, not everyone will agree with them, but I think this is quite a good way of trying to work out what is a genuine holy well um, from what isn't. Now, number one, does the well have a saintly dedication? Number two, number two, is the well associated with a nearby church, an ancient church preferably? And number three, are there any folkloric tales linked specifically to the well? Now, the reason I've chosen these is because Cornwall is full of holy wells. It's got loads of holy wells all over the place. And it's got loads of other wells as well. And, and some people sort of venerate the, the drinking wells and the, the domestic wells as holy wells and over over the centuries things have got a bit confused and um and i'm i'm not an expert on holy wells by any means but but i love visiting them and you can generally get a sense of when you're visiting a holy well um they're still venerated to this day um you you get and they're normally associated with a parish an old parish church or they'll be on a path from the parish church, um, which is quite clear. And yeah, and, and these holy wells, people would have collected water from them, especially around Easter. Again, Easter seems to be the time, springtime, collecting the, the, the well of water was generally seen as being more potent and, 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 more, and better for you. Um, because a lot of these holy wells are associated with healing. Yeah, and they have lots yeah. of healing stories. They can be used to, to soothe the eyes, to soothe the skin. You can drink the water to, to, to feel better. Um, and, of course, years ago, they would have been the only source of water as well. So they why not see them all as holy in a way? Because in days gone by, the, the only source of water would have been your local spring or well. And a lot of them gained folklore and tales and a mystery because of this, because water was so important. And when you start to think about this, you can see why why they're so venerated and they've got such power, because they really have. I find them to be some of the most powerful sites in the landscape. And, and, well, and they're great places to sit and just think about things. Yeah. I think that water is very, it's very particular, isn't it? Because it does retain memory. Um, Absolutely, it, yeah. You know, and, and so it really is something that it's, I think, very important. And if, if it is venerated by a lot of people, then it becomes holy, yeah. Um, who was John White? And why is it important for us to mention her name? <laughs> Okay, Joan White. Now, this and this is another um, contentious issue within the folklore of Cornwall, um, because lots of people don't think Joan White really existed, um, or she or she didn't exist in the context that that has, has been foisted on her today. Um, Joan White was known as the Fighting Fairy Woman of Bodmin. And she was also reputed to have been a witch. Um, and the, the, the folklore goes, the stories go, and that she is said to have used one of the most holy wells in Bodmin Town. And that's a well called Scarlet's Well, which is a famous healing well on the edge of Bodmin. 
and it was used for scrying and magic and healing. Um, anyway, Joan was reputed to have been born in Bodmin in 1775, and it's said she died in 1813 in Bodmin Jail from pneumonia. She's only aged 38. Um, now, the, the reason we're interested in her is because for many years her remains were in the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Boscastle. Um, they were just there for all to see, um, on display, um, all through the, the, the ownership of Cecil Williamson, they were on display, pretty much. And when, and when the next owner took over the museum, um, he decided to take the bones down um, and, and lay them to rest properly. And they were laid to rest just outside the parish church in Boscastle um, on the perimeter wall of it so it was just outside the consecrated ground but in a really beautiful location in in, in these beautiful deep woods um stunning location right in deep in the valley and of course a gravestone was put up in her memory and there's a copy of this gravestone in the museum of witchcraft and magic as well so you can see it there but of course folklore builds around these types of things and and people started to visit the grave leave flowers there and they started to get interested in Joan White who was she and people started to write about her and she has entered the folklore the folklore of witchcraft in Cornwall there's no doubt about it whoever she was whether she whether she was a witch whether she wasn't whether she, she was called Joan or whether she wasn't she was somebody that died in Bodmin jail in 1813 and Somehow, do we know what bones, do you do we on. know what she did to um, be in jail? Yeah, yeah, she used to fight people <laughs> on the streets. Now, there's a reason for this. She, she used to get really angry and agitated. Now, it was found after she died that, that looking at her, her the remains of her body, the skeleton, that she had chronic abscesses in her teeth, and she must have been in, in horrendous pain. Now. There was no dental treatment in those days, and nothing much you could do if you had these abscesses. You'd just be in pain all the time. So of course, yeah. it's thought that she, that in, in, in sort of a latter part of her life, she was in intense pain, and it caused her to have these outbursts of anger. And you didn't have to do much in them days to get thrown in prison. And I think just by being out on the streets shouting and screaming like uh, like a madwoman was enough to have the poor thing put in prison and shut away um, because people didn't understand they didn't understand what was going on and uh, and it, it's really sad that, that if that's really what happened um, and then she died in prison from pneumonia um, it's a really sad story no matter what her background and. This is the interesting thing with this story. It's very much about um, looking at persecution uh, and looking at how persecution has has manifested over the centuries. Um, uh, in, in in sort of the latter part of the 18th and early 19th centuries, you know, women were seen as uh, as subservient. They were second class citizens. You know, they weren't that important. They were and and. If you had a problem, or you were you were perhaps living on your own, you would be seen as an outcast. And and I think there's something of that in this story here, um, where Joan was out on the streets in pain, 
um, not acting always how she should have acted, and because of that, she was put into jail. Now, the interesting thing with this story is we don't really know what happened for sure within the history, but we do know that this skeleton was in the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic. Now, we don't know if it's a skeleton even, but we're going to believe it is because at the end of the day, she was buried, she was given a burial, and this gravestone actually is a focus for modern day witches to go and lay some flowers and, and think of her and, and honour her memory. And honour her memory simply because she was persecuted, probably just for being a woman. Okay, oh, I'm, so I'm sure, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I, I think just by that alone, it, it's a good enough reason to include her story in my book because, Absolutely. as I say, this this is modern folklore, but it's based on on this idea of persecution, and it's something that we all need to think about really because persecution still goes on and it changes, of course, but it still has the same consequences. So, um, yeah, I think it's important to, re to remember Joan, Joan White, no matter who she was, and remember her through the tales of her, her modern-day folklore. She probably didn't have anything, but if she did, and this happened here in Salem, they would take their land. And uh, yeah. that was a very yeah. good business. <laughs> All they had to do it, is it to confuse sure them. Was. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. Yeah, sir. Yeah, from granite to sea, uh, the folklore of Bodmin Moor and uh, East Cornwall by Alex um, Langston, and um, uh, beautifully illustrated by Paul Atlas Saunders and also Gemma Gary as well. So my cat just woke up. <laughs> just Sad. Sad Hello. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Okay. So, um,. Uh, thank you so much, Alex, for being here on the um, uh, Hidden Light and uh, share your absolutely fantastic work with us. And uh, we're waiting for another book. Do you have any? I do. I will be writing about more folklore from mid-Cornwall very soon. And I'll also be writing about folklore from other parts of the UK as well. But that's more longer term. So, yeah, there'll be more stories coming, more folklore coming watch the Troy Books website uh, for future editions. And here we go, again with uh, Alex Langston. Thank you so much, Alex, and uh, we hope to see you soon and hear from you. Thank you very much, Carrigan. A pleasure.